Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now All right, now everybody, just just calm down a bit. Uh, I know you weren't expecting to see me here. It's me, your old friend Buddy Ebsen. Remember me? You remember me, don't you, sir? You remember me? Uh. Remember the great Buddy Ebsen? Uh, Buddy Hackett? No, well, uh, I, you know what? He almost did come, but okay. uh, he was he was strangely not available. No, the, but Buddy Ebsen. I, I was Jim Clampett on uh, on Beverly Hillbillies. Jason, help me out with this one. Jason, Jason, get his references. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I get it, I get it. I, I, I know who you are. Yeah, I've, I've watched Beverly Hills. I saw the movie with, um, oh, what's this guy? You know, the guy that played Ernest. Don't you say his name around here. Okay, I'm sorry, Mr. Epson. Uh, look, fellas, uh, I got sent down here because uh, there's a bit of a backup uh, in uh, actor heaven. And they was, they was going to send someone down from the Red Shoes, but uh, it turns out, and, and this is surprising, they're all extra dead. Oh. Yeah. There's another layer of dead. Well, yeah, it is. And and I think when you're extra dead, you're like, you're, you're straight up done. Like, I, I don't know what they did. I don't know who they offended. Wow. Every last Every last one of them that was in that movie, I mean, we was having dinner one night, because we all have dinner. Cast of the Beverly Hills in the Red, in the Red Shoe movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. All the time. Irene Ryan. Oh, Irene Ryan loves those people. But... They just disappeared, and we ain't never heard hide no hair of them before. I feel like this has happened before, but I can't really remember because time doesn't have any meaning in the afterlife. So, but if you're wondering why I, Buddy Epson, am here, I was the closest available person to this movie, and and the only reason was is because if you'll remember, when I was very young, I auditioned for The Wizard of Oz, and that was a movie that also had a pair of shoes that was red. Jason, he's really reaching for this one. Yeah, I know they're they're really off their game today. Uh, well, that's that's really cool, Mister Mister Epson. Cool is that what you kids say nowadays? Cool. <laughs> oh my! Uh, when I was a boy, we used to say that was whip smart snapping. <laughs> yeah, things are whip not snapping now. That's for sure. Things are things are just getting up, as we would we would also say at that time. Wow. Well, okay, Mr. I'm Epson, I'm going to use that in my everyday life now. Yeah, that, that's some that's some fine fine words, Mr. Epson. Thank you so much. So, did uh, do, do you know why you're here, Mr. Epson? No, 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 no. But I thought I'd stop in. I'd say hello. I, I understand you both are huge fans of my work, uh, specifically Barnaby Jones. Uh, so I just wanted to say thank you for your support. And uh, if I see those red shoe folks, I'll send them by. But I don't think they're coming back. 
Thank you, Mr. Anderson. I appreciate the effort. Yeah, we, we really do appreciate it. So the All right, well, I'm going back to Act of Heaven. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. <sighs> Did he just oh. <laughs> was that was a, he just left in a cloud of flames? Yeah, well, <laughs> I said, mean it's Act of Heaven? I never noticed take, that before. You, well, everyone takes their their rocket their, you know, their rocket jet back to heaven. That's just a wow. thing people do. I guess I guess if you're in heaven, you could expect to have a rocket jet. Um, well, he didn't really introduce us, so uh, I'm Brendan. He didn't, he didn't do anything he was supposed to do, and I'm Jason. And this is a podcast called For Screen Contrary. What do we do on this podcast, Jason? Well, I'm drinking coffee right now. I don't always do it, but I'm doing it right now. And when we do uh, the coffee drinking, we also talk about the, the top 100 greatest films of all time by British people, as rated by British people, in the year of our Lord, 1900 and 1999, by the, the, we'll call them the Royal British Film Institute. The, 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 sure. Well, I mean, you were close. You added an, an, an unnecessary word, but it works. It, it should be. The, the, that's the thing, is that the Queen has clearly has not given her blessing to the British Film Institute, and if she did, then it could be called the Royal British Film Institute, or, or simply the Royal Film Institute. Well, we know that's not the case, um, considering some of these movies are probably pretty critical of her. Well, you know, if she was a, a good queen, she would just take it as good as she can give. I mean, she's out there every day beating her drum, talking about how good a queen she is. She may as well yeah. be a pro wrestler with promos she cuts. According to the, uh, according to the Meg- uh, Harry and Meghan TV movie, she often watches The Crown on Netflix. So there you go. Uh, just to be like, oh, it didn't happen like that. And then, and then to see the, and then to see the part about the, the 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 big slide and then to cry softly to herself. It's ever so inaccurate. Yes, I, I never wore a dress like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was a stone cold whore. Anyway, yeah. um, but yeah, so we're, we're banned in England now. <laughs> what? We're banned in England now. You just called the queen a whore. We're done. We're gonna be off the pod nets. Oh no, no, I said a whore. It's like the oh, fun uh, version. Oh, okay. So she was a whore, Jackie, a whore. Yeah, so now it's fun. Cool. Joey Pants. Gotta love him. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about a movie off the list this week. Uh, we're talking, of course, about a movie called uh, The Remains of the Day, which is number 64. But before we talk about that movie, Jason... First, we got comments. About the red shoes. Jason, my friend. Brendan, my man. Jason, my boy. Brendan, my fellow traveler. Jason! Brendan. Let's read some comments. We can do that. So are you going to sing everything? I mean, I could, but probably not, because I can't hold a tune. Uh, so what are we talking about? We're talking about comments. Or, what did we just say mere seconds ago? The Red Shoes. Ooh. We're going to read some comments. All right. I'm going to start us off here. Okay. Some comments from our listeners. All right. I'm ready. Shelby Mooring says, Mm. it's one of my favorites as someone who danced for 15 years and as an artist. It's so innovative and beautiful and haunting. The dance sequences are beautiful and up there with some of my favorite dance sequences in film. I'm happy we heard from a dancer on this one because that's exactly who I'd want to hear because this is the person I would ask about this. There are, we, 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 I think we did get more than one person here like that. So, well, we'll But it's see. not Kyle Keppen. Read Kyle Keppen's comment. Thanks, Shelby. Uh, Kyle, old Kyle Keppen says, My favorite PP movie is, whichever one, I just finished watching. Ballet is not my thing, but while I'm watching it, the 15-minute sequence here makes me think that ballet is the only art form that ever mattered. 
magic. I okay. appreciate that you're going to read them all like in, like a newscaster. <laughs> I almost said old-timey, but if old-timey, you'd be like, my favorite P&P movie is whichever one I just finished watching on the march. <laughs> Dateline, now. Uh, thanks, Kyle. Our uh, next comment comes from Caitlin Hansen. This is a bit of a different uh, comment here. Of the band. Oh, yeah. wait, no, it's with an E. Never yeah, mind. She's, the... she, she's related to Chris Hansen. I'm sorry, I got it out of my system, Caitlin. I know, I'm sure it's a, you've heard it a million times. My apologies. I have to get it out. But I just got to ask you something, Caitlin. What did you think was going to happen here? Is that a Hansen's band reference? No, it's a Dateline reference. Oh, I, can, I see. <laughs> I just knew the name. I, you, I, I, would have, uh, I would have expected a, oh, have a seat over here uh, No, reference. no. I've, you uh, went a little deeper because you're a fan. Yeah, I've been on. I mean, I've watched that show. Oh, yeah. uh, so anyway, Caitlin Hansen you says. You kind of look uh, like you. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> um, She says, I tried so hard to find the artistic merit and greatness because I'd heard it's such an amazing film. I was bored to tears. It's pretty, I'll say that, but I just say I just could not get into it. I couldn't care less about the characters. That's understandable because I really thought that that's how I was going to feel about it. And uh, but it, there was enough going on there that I I didn't end up feeling like I had wasted my time watching the movie. It's it's a beautiful piece. Put it on but, the back of the box. But it's also not again. It's I I say this for a lot of movies like this. This is not the hey let's get drunk with our friends and watch a cool movie. But I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of the movies on this list are not that. I don't know, man. We've watched some movies, like like Wicker Man, for instance. Well, you want to go get fucked up and watch My Left Foot? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Look at that guy. He just uses his mouth and his foot. Our next comment is from Christian Zafriglou, and I apologize if I mangled your name, sir. Uh, Or ma'am. I guess Christian could be a lady's name, too, but I'm going to assume it's a dude. There's actually, uh, uh, my sister is named Christian. We call her Sister Christian. Oh, the time has come. And you know, you're the only one. It's funny, you're wearing shorts. Do you have firecrackers? Pass. Okay. Christian says, "It it, it is one of my favorite movies ever, and its climax left me wrecked for days. There's casual conversation near the start of the plot, the production and char- a character flippantly, flippantly, excuse me, and a character flippantly asks, and she dies. Of course, the fact that uh, the fact that line is played so casually to haunt so deeply at the end left me with tears. And yeah, I, I see what you're saying. That's a that's a big come around, isn't it? It was so powerful. Such that- an offhanded line, and then yeah, it totally comes back around. So powerful that Jason uh, forgot about English for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. We're, we're halfway into a Molson. I mean, I gotta oh, shit. gotta be forgiven. Uh, Sharon Horwood, serial commenter, mm-hmm. says, "I'm mixed on this one. On one hand, I adore the ballet sequence. It's kind of the love child of the Dream Ballet in American in Paris and Laurence Olivier's Henry V, which we did mention. Yes, uh, that one." Uh, and I think the main theme, which is a critique of auteur theory and how it damages everyone that is not the auteur, is a powerful message. At the same time, the final conflict between Lermontov and Craster over Victoria seems a little too more melodramatic than the movie had been up to that point. I love how Victoria's death is filmed, how morbid is that sentence, and how the film wraps everything up. But it felt like they kind of cheated to get the ending they wanted. Yeah. Oh, interesting take. And I just thought the whole, I mean, obviously, we remember my main problem was just it was so such a hoary kind of cliche, tropey, like they're fighting over a girl ending. And I get that it was 1940, whatever, but still. Yeah, I still feel I still feel like there's something to that theory of uh, Martin Scorsese that it's not like the shoes actually take over for a moment. Another comment from Emily Oldham. 
who says, I think about this film all the time. One of the most perfect openings ever. The excitement of waiting to watch a live performance as well as being an exquisite introduction to the characters. Then there are lines like Lermontov's distinction between a shock and a surprise and his advice to Julian. It is much more disheartening to have to steal than be stolen from. Everyone is fascinating. Marius Goering never gets enough credit for how he plays Julian, earnest and young, but with a kind of bone-deep exhaustion, too. It hurts to look at someone like Moira Shearer sometimes. And then there's the Anton Walbrook of, of it all, and the colors and the humor and the ballet. Magic. Second Thank you. person to say magic. Emily, wow. And, and such lovely words uh, for this movie. You clearly like this one a lot. And that's what's interesting, is that this movie is beloved. It is beloved. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And it's number nine. But it also, I understand people don't like it because it's pretty close to being that kind of movie for me. They're but. wrong! <laughs> Sharon Horwood also said one more thing oh. here. Uh, I added it at the end. P.S. As a fun fact, all the Powell and Pressburger movies had their films, at least the ones on the BFI list, colored by the same woman, Natalie Kalmus. She also did the color control on 1938 Robin Hood, Ooh. Rope, and even Gone with the Wind, and she has 384 credits on IMDb. Wow, she's a fucking giant of color if she did Robin Hood and fucking Gone with the Wind, two of the most like prominent color movies of that era. And I think it's crazy because we're talking about you know, the thirties and forties and stuff. We're talking about this, this, this woman mm. who, you know, this is almost unheard of at the time, uh, responsible for making the color and all these, beautiful you know, movies. you know, there was some studio executives like colors. That's what ladies do. Get us a lady. <laughs> Computers. I don't have time for this. I've Get- got a party to go to and I have no cocaine. <laughs> it hasn't been a minute yet, sir. God damn it. <laughs> oh, well, look me up with some horse tranquilizer. Ah, that'll do. Or just some just some bathtub gin. Wasn't that all gin? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, well, the last thing we do, Jason, is we compare this to what number nine is on the American Film Institute list. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. No, number nine on the AFI list is the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo. Vertigo. I don't think I've seen Vertigo. That's oh. Jimmy. So by default. By default, it has to be Red Shoes, although I would like to see Vertigo. I did see a Rear Window recently, meaning like in the last two years. Yeah, and that was great. I really like Vertigo. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's Hitchcock's best though. A lot of people say it's his best one. And I don't. According to the AFI, it's his best one. No, that's Lifeboat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I just really like Lifeboat. What a choice! <laughs> oh my god, what a choice, Mark. Um, <laughs> I mean, like Psycho. It's kind of shocking to me that Psycho is not higher on that list. Mm. It's a, it's not that much lower, but anyway, um, I'm gonna have to give this a red choose. Honestly, I like Vertigo, but. I don't think it's Hitchcock's best. So, two red shoes from For Screen and Country. Hi-oh! Hi-oh! Well, Jason, that about wraps it up on the red shoes. Tying those puppies up and tap dancing into your hearts. We have to talk about this week's movie now, The Remains of the Day. I did not know that Merchant and Ivory were two separate people. I assumed that they were just the name of a production company, which you say they are actually. There is a production company called Merchant Ivory? It is a production company as well, yes, and it consists of three people. It's James Merchant, 
Isma oh, wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this gonna wrong. This Hold on. J- James Ivory, not James Merchant. Uh director James Ivory, producer Ish- Ishmael Merchant, and writer Ruth Prower Jabavala. Yes, and, and the, the second fella, Mr. Uh, Mr. Merchant, Merchant is uh dead. Oh, that's sad. Fifteen years almost. Oh wow. But yeah, I, I didn't realize they were two separate people. I thought that this production company was named like Merchant Ivory because it was like founded, I guess, by like elephant hunters. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like they were like ivory sellers, but because ivory's illegal, they had to get out of the ivory business. So where are you going to put your money? Movies. <laughs> what are we going to do? Well, we better stop making period pieces, boys. See, I always assumed that their logo would be like a guy in a pith helmet with a really big gun. Hey, uh, Gary, we need to change that logo and stop reminding people about how we used to kill elephants. <laughs> well, maybe but we you don't should... do it no more. Well, maybe you shouldn't have called it Merchant Ivory, you fucking mook. <laughs> Gary's I, got a point. I wonder if, if their office ever got calls for people being like, yes, you guys know we can get some ivory. Like like rich, rich stupid people, uh, or rather the servants of rich, stupid people, like <laughs> sighing on the phone, be like, okay, I'm sorry to have to ask you this. But my boss is paying me, so I have to ask you this. And I, again, I apologize. Do you sell elephant ivory? No. Oh, you don't. Okay, I'm so sorry. I just imagine. Uh, I just imagine um, James Ivory answering the phone, and be like, "No, no, no. You, you want the ivory merchants? That's that's three one two seven. You're looking for specifically for Ivory James. If you get in contact with Ivory James, he can get you all the ivory you want. But I am James Ivory. I'm a film director. <laughs> oh, all right. You got any? Uh, it's a great bit. <laughs> yeah, we got, got any more bits we want to get out of any more bits? Any more bits? <laughs> uh, remains well, of the day. Remains, remains of the day. Uh, I, I gotta say, as a title, could be a zombie movie. Like, like where where a new zombie shows up every morning and they have to like clear the remains of the zombie out, and they're like, oh, oh what's what's with the remains of the day? Oh, it's out front. We haven't dealt with it yet. <laughs> I do like um, that it's not an on the nose title. No, no, it, uh, that's, it, that's it, a... it even looks into the camera and says it with a wink. No, I don't even think it's said once in the movie, which, you know, bonus points. The, the closest is near the end uh, of the movie. She says something about uh, about her favorite time of the day, like the mm. evening. And I'm thinking uh, yes. that just a really poetic way of calling the evening the remains of the day, perhaps. Perhaps. But let's perhaps. talk about the remains of the day. This movie comes out in 1993. Or or after Silence of the Lambs. Oh, after after okay so th- but this is and this is one of the more distracting things about this movie this is exactly like the age that anthony hopkins was when he played anthony or played well not exactly slightly older but like it was very recently that he had played hannibal lecter so from the moment this movie opens he's hannibal lecter because he's anthony hopkins at that almost exact age <laughs> and it was just a little distracting out of the gate because he just looks so evil with his you know with his slick back hair and his sunken eyes I mean, maybe when it starts, but I think... Yeah, I no, think it goes away fast, for sure. Yeah, That's I was going to say, I think he disappears pretty quickly. Yeah, um, because he's, he's a fantastic actor, so there's no problem there. It's just funny, out sure. of the gate, being like... And, and uh, it may just be because he has that slick back hair uh, uh, as the butler. It just immediately is just like, oh, Hannibal Lecter is going to eat us today. I love it. <laughs> well, that's what he's going to cook. That's the meal. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. So this movie comes out in 1993. The Remains of the Day, a Merchant Ivory production, our first of two that are on this list. Yes. Um, the, the cast of this movie is pretty great. We've got, yes. of course, Anthony Hopkins playing Mr. Stevens, a butler. who takes Jim. his work very seriously. 
Jim Stevens. Jim Stevens, which we do barely hear. We mostly just hear him referred to as Mr. Stevens. Oh, literally the only time he's called Jim is by his dad. Yeah. Um, we have the wonderful Emma Thompson playing Miss Kenton, or uh, her name is Sally, yeah. Uh, yeah, who is the housekeeper. Uh, we have James Fox, who is also very good. Three, like, really good lead roles here, lead performances from these three actors. Like, they are all tip-top shape in this movie. Uh, Brother, James- of course. James Fox, brother, of course, to my favorite psychotic military officer from Gandhi, Edward Fox. Yeah, Edward Fox playing himself in Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> but James Fox plays the uh, plays Lord Darlington, the the man who owns the uh, the house of which we spend most of the movie in. It didn't uh, it didn't occur to me until you just said it, but that's a hilarious name for a lord, Lord Darlington. Like it, it reminds me of on uh, Blackadder how they always said Captain Darling. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, come here, darling. Uh, let me talk to you for a minute, darling. I just I just pictured that was uh, uh, Julie Christie's character's last name in Darling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Julie Darlington. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, we also have a Yank in this movie because we have Christopher Reeve, Superman, Superman himself, himself. Yeah, playing Congressman Jack Lewis. We have our old buddy Hugh Grant as Reginald Cardinal. <laughs> yep, we do. Uh, we have uh, Peter Vaughn playing yes. uh, Anthony Hopkins, well, uh, playing Mr. Stevens Sr., his dad. Our old buddy from Zulu Dawn, and also uh, one of at least two uh, future Game of Thrones stars in this movie. We also have Michael Lonsdale playing the French Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dupont Divry. And we also have uh, Lena Headey playing Lizzie. There's our other there's our other Game of Thrones uh, star there. So it's a pretty well, good cast, um, especially, you know, in, in with our lead roles. I mean, we have five pretty big powerhouse, well, four pretty big powerhouse names in there hugh grant was not a name at the time uh, hmm. because four weddings and a funeral came out the very same year so especially at least when he was making this film he was not known to almost anyone <laughs> yeah but this yeah. is a movie this is a movie jason it's a movie and what is this movie about this movie is about kind of the life and uh well not the whole life but but a good chunk of the life of uh anthony hopkins character james stevens okay. and he is the head butler at lord darlington's residence in the country where he's you know being a lord and doing lordly things and lording it over the common folk yeah and so we, we follow him uh they hire a new housekeeper uh played by emma thompson or, or was she there already no they he hires her they have a bit of a contentious relationship out of the gate because he is the most like British British guy uh, in Butler form. He is completely reserved. He reacts pretty much to nothing, and he is very serious about his work. Uh, uh, and I mean, it shows because he's a very good Butler. Um, yeah, he is a he is a nut that is very tough to crack, but that I believe she insists on cracking or trying to. And this whole movie is framed by a flashback. It begins at the end of the story. Well, sort of not really at the end of the story, but like later on when he's long after he served Lord Darling, this American that, that once visited there, played by Christopher Reeves, American congressman slash dude. Yeah, uh, American congressman Jack. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shows up and he buys the place. Mm-hmm. And so he comes with the house, I guess, Anthony Hopkins. And so he has to he is sent off to like staff up the house. And is going yep. to see, uh, uh, what's her name, Mrs. Uh, Kenton. Kenton. Yes, yeah, so going to see Mrs. Kenton in the hopes that she'll come back to work for them. 
so then we see them in the past. We see them, they, they start to form their relationship between each other as they go through uh, a very interesting time in history. This movie is fascinating because it takes place in a very important part of the lead up to World War II. Well, I believe when we first joined them in the first like kind of flashback, right about 1936. Yeah, so we're 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 still we're still three years off from the actual start of the war, and uh, Lord Darlington is something of a German sympathizer. But I want to talk about that. Okay, I want to talk about that first, yes. because I think the way it's portrayed in this movie. Now, yes. I kind of knew that was going to be an aspect of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of knew there was something to do with that. But the way it's portrayed in the movie, I think, is really interesting because it's they don't all. Well to- yeah, they don't altogether make him a villain. No, um, no. You, you, you get the sort of thing that even if you don't think anything is justified, he sees it from a noble point of view. Yes. And the he, way he's kind of seeing the world. And, and this is one of the, the debates that comes up in the course of the movie is this idea of, of kind of the old school, uh, what do you call it? The more, more ideological approach to politics and a more modern real politic. Where real politic is like very is very pragmatic and really concerned about modern conditions, whereas the older style of politics was a bunch of aristocrats who held these lofty ideals that they could then be pal around with each other and, and pretend that they were upholding. So he's definitely from that ideological perspective. He had a German friend. Oh, we well. learned in the course of the movie. Yeah. Should we just listen to the scene of him talking sure, about? Yeah. It? We'll play the scene and then we'll get into it. Okay. I had a German friend, Karl Heinz Bremen. We fought on opposite sides in the war. We always said when this wretched business is over, we'll sit down and have a drink together, like gentlemen. The Versailles Treaty made a liar of me. Yes, a liar, Stevens. Because the terms that we, the victor, imposed were so harsh that Germany was simply finished. Well, one doesn't do that to a defeated foe. Once you've got your man on the canvas, that ought to be the end of it. My friend Bremen was... uh, Ruined by inflation. Couldn't get a job in post-war Germany. Killed himself. Shot himself in a railway carriage between Hamburg and Berlin. Well, ever since that time, I felt it my duty, my job, Stevens, to hold out a helping hand to Germany. Give her a fair chance. So we get that. His friend was German. They were going to get together after the war. But the dude eventually killed himself because he couldn't handle uh, the shitty position that Germany was in. And, and you know what? He's right. The, the Versailles Treaty, in retrospect, was an incredibly punitive uh, uh, treaty against Germany. And it, it did help create the conditions that led to the rise of Nazism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what the Lord can't seem to see past is the Nazism, or, or at least he doesn't seem to acknowledge it, and, or is absorbing it in a way that is like not conscious i think he he is willing to look past the political situation because he does have a real sympathy for german people and and through his friend germany but he's blind to what the nazism actually is and what it means for europe i mean obviously there's even even throughout this movie there's always talk of a war coming it wasn't assured and this movie actually depicts the uh, one of those attempts to prevent a war and that was what became known as the munich agreement and they basically discussed this munich agreement in the movie uh although we don't see it because uh, we're, we're not following that actually we're following this boat so yeah we th- this is taking place 
in his in in the house that uh, uh, Stevens is the butler for with Lord Darlington. So we got the we, we we got the British Prime Minister there, Neville Chamberlain, famously you know peace in our time guy, and that line is actually said in the movie uh, by Stevens. Um, and we've got the German ambassador, and we got you know a bunch of and the French guy and. The Munich Agreement, basically, Hitler had been making a bunch of territorial demands in, in Europe, and his his supposed last territorial demand, and then he was done and it was going to be fine, was he just wanted the Sudetenland back, which is the southern part of, well, was the southern part of Germany that at that time was part of Czechoslovakia. And so, through a bunch of diplomatic wrangling, they managed to make that happen. And in late 1938, basically handed the Sudetenland over to Hitler. Neville Chamberlain came back to England, held up a piece of paper in his hand, and said there will be peace in our time. And less than a year later, the Nazis invaded Poland. Yeah. So, so this, I this think we was, can agree lying was Adolf Hitler's biggest crime. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> you can't trust me. I'm little Hitler. <laughs> I'm a bad little boy. Bad little boy. Uh, yeah, so... That that didn't work out, and and to this day, the idea of appeasement is a very uh, very much an insult if you talk to someone and accuse them of fostering in, or, uh, in, uh, appeasement of the enemy, because you're just delaying. It's just a very terrible delaying tactic, and then they'll eventually just do what they're going to do anyways. You know. Yeah. But that's that's the political stuff that's going on in this movie, which is some real heavy shit. But then that is the background against which the story of of Jim Stevens kind of life there is taking place and we when we initially see him you know he's the head butler he's brought his father in played by uh uh our buddy peter vaughn yeah yeah uh to be the under to be an under butler Mm -hmm. which at first seems like okay this guy seems really fucking old but it turns out that despite the fact that he is really fucking old you know he's been doing this a long time he knows what he's doing um, but it's clear even from the beginning, he like coughs slightly and it's like, okay, he's dead. There's no, he, he coughed a little bit. That's it. And then later in the movie, we see him and he's, he's having a bit of a spell. Excuse me. He's having a bit of a spell while he, uh, is serving drinks <laughs> and, and he leans over the drink and something drips off his nose into the drink. And I, I was sure that that was going to come back at some point and that the Lord was going to get sick from some disease <laughs> that he had caught from the drip into his drink from his, the guy's nose. And and I mean, I think this is a good time to introduce the sort of relationship between um, Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton, because the, the, the dad comes into this first conversation, first disagreement here, mm. um, which if you want to get an example of Hopkins character, you know, being the most proper, like rigid up and down butler of all time. Fastidious this is, is yeah. the proper word. Fastidious. This, this is the scene. So here, take a listen. Uh, there is a matter I wanted to mention to you, just a small matter. I happened to be uh, walking past the kitchen yesterday morning, and I heard you calling to someone named William. May I ask who it was you were addressing by that name? Why, Mr. Stevens, I should think I was addressing your father. Oh. There are no other Williams in this house, I take it? True. May I ask you in future, Miss Kenton, to address my father as Mr. Stevens? If you are speaking of him to a third party, you may wish to call him Mr. Stephen Senior to distinguish him from myself. So I would be most grateful to you, Miss Kenton. I don't quite Hmm? understand what you're getting at, Mr. Stevens. I am the housekeeper in this house, and your father is the underbutler. In other houses, I was accustomed 
to address the underservants by their Christian names. Hmm. Miss Kenton, if you would stop to think for a moment, you would realize that how inappropriate it is for one such as yourself to address as William, someone such as my father. Well, I'm sure, Mr. Stevens, it must have been very galling for your father to be called William by one such as myself. Miss Kenton, all I'm saying is that my father is a person from whom, if you wish to be more observant, you may learn many things. I'm most grateful for your advice, Mr. Stevens, but do please tell me just what marvellous things might I learn from your father. I might point out that you're still often unsure of what goes where and which item is which. I'm sure Mr. Stevens Sr. is very good at his job. But I can assure you, Mr. Stevens, that I'm very good at mine. Oh, of course. Thank you. And uh, now, if you will, please excuse me. Miss Kenton? Yeah. I, I, I like, I think that scene is very funny, too. Like, yeah. it's it's very quiet and subtle, but she, she she's very sarcastic mm, in, mm. in the sense of, like, oh, well, it must have been appalling for, you know, was Mr. Stevens Sr. to hear me call him William. He must have been devastated by that. Yes. <laughs> Um, and she's she's really a good counterpart to his um, very um, stoic uh, manner of of, of uh, behaving. Yeah, and she kind of needles him a bit throughout the movie, trying to just provoke reactions out of him and, and just get him to act just a little bit beyond the whole butler persona. And it kind of leads to, I mean, just say it, it kind of leads to an attraction, right? Mm. Yes, this uh, this movie is sort of a romance. Uh, but it's One, in the most like like yeah. minimal British like we don't talk about it we just have longing looks kind of way. <laughs> very, I mean, very accurate to this time and to the profession yes. that both characters have. Um, yeah, exactly. I feel like it's a little more obvious on her part. Yes. And I think Hopkins has a few moments where he slips, and I want to see if you notice this too. There's a moment later in the film um, where she walks away she serves serves him and another butler from another uh, estate and yeah. she walks away and he says something he says um i don't know what i would do without her pauses and then said she's one of the best housekeepers we've ever had like mm. it, it's it's almost like for a moment he forgot yes. you know what i mean yes, that, and, exactly it slipped out of him that he was just he just he actually said that to the guy yeah. rather than keeping it under his hat as he would just about everything else in his life but then a heart, but then heartbreaking moment when she is just crying her eyes out and he makes some attempt to console her. But all he can do is tell her that something needs dusting. Yeah. Yeah. So that is like the that is like, I mean, that's not the most tragic moment in this movie. I mean, there are no. so many heartbreaking moments and scenes. But that uh, reflects throughout. on that reflects on his attitude that for him. You know, anytime there's any sort of emotional turmoil that he might have to deal with, he throws himself into his work. And I guess that makes sense for him to suggest, you know, like, hey, let's let's dust. <laughs> and and I, and I mean, yeah. And I mean, well, yeah, exactly. It's almost like he it's almost like his method is to take her mind off it by talking about mundane things that he would do. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost like that's his way of consoling. Um, I do think it's interesting that he is like such an objectionable, uh, uh, like not objectionable. What do you, what do you call it? Neutral, a neutral third party. Yeah. That he like all this crazy stuff is being discussed in this home, you know, Nazi sympathizers, ta meetings with the Germans. And he claims to have, have no knowledge of what's going on. He claims to not listen to any of these conversations. Mm. He stays completely out of it. What do yeah. you think? Do you think it's possible 
for someone like this. And I know he doesn't show it, but do you think it's possible for a character like this to do you think he is secretly listening and he has any kind of regrets that he keeps to himself? I think that he's I think that he actively does try to ignore it. But the fact of the matter is, is that I don't think you can like you can pretend you're not listening and you can try not to listen. But if it's there, you're going to hear it. And yeah, at some point he's got to know what's going on. He's not stupid. I mean, I, I think he probably justifies it to himself by saying, well, that's not my place. My my place is as this butler. That's what I'm employed to do. And it doesn't you know, e- even if I wanted to do something about, or, you know, what could I do? Well, and and there, I wanted I do want to play a speech here um, because I think it's important we play at least one clip with not with Anthony Hopkins because he is in most of this movie. Mm. Um, but this speech that Christopher Reeve, as the congressman, gives at uh, one of the banquets because he's kind of echoing the opposite point of view that Lord Darlington has. Not the opposite, but kind of you know warning him against what he's doing by um, uh, speaking with you know the German the German ambassador and stuff. Um, and and. You know, the whole time you see that Hopkins is listening. Like, mm. I think I think there's no denying that he's listening to this speech because you see slight inflections in his face. Yeah. Like indications that it's it's processing. I don't think he's I don't think he's straight up ignoring it. But anyway, I just want to play this little speech here that Christopher Reeve gives. Plus, I think Christopher Reeve gives a great performance. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States doesn't want war any more than you do. On the other hand, neither would we care for peace at any price. Because some prices, you may find, are too outrageously high to pay. But let's not get into that now. We may all have to soon enough. For the moment, let us simply raise our glasses to Lord Darlington in gratitude for his magnificent hospitality. Lord Darlington. Lord Darlington, Lord Darlington is a classic English gentleman of the old school. Decent and honorable and well-meaning. So are all of you here, all decent and honorable and well-meaning gentlemen. It's been a pleasure and a privilege for me to visit with you here. But, now excuse me, I have to say this. You are, all of you, amateurs. And international affairs should never be run by gentlemen amateurs. Do you have any idea of what sort of a place the world is becoming all around you? The days when you could just act out of your noble instincts are over. Europe has become the arena of realpolitik, the politics of reality. If you like, real politics. And what you need is not gentlemen politicians, but real ones. You need professionals to run your affairs or you're headed for disaster. I propose a toast, gentlemen, to the professionals. And that's interesting to me that the American is the one person in the movie that's like, nay, come on, guys, we're going to have a war here. <laughs> He's like the one guy that's the one guy that's right. And, and they didn't come into the war until two years later. Well, I think I think him and also uh, the the French uh, prime minister is kind of hesitant about the whole thing, too. But he also does seem like the idea. I mean, I. He does want peace. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, that's not crazy that everybody would want peace. But he seems. Everybody seems pretty on board with like, well, we just give Germany the sedate land and everything will be cool. Yeah. You know? it, it. I find this moment kind of terrifying. Is when the German ambassador just starts like singing for everyone. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but that scene just chilled me to the bone. Well, I saw a propaganda film from uh, just after the war for uh, troops that were occupying Germany once. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the film, it warns that don't be fooled by German culture. Yes, and that's what they use. It's it's, it's so fun, and they've got their, their lederhosen and their, their oompa music, and it seems so fun and happy until all of a sudden you've got Mr. Hitler in your backyard. Tomorrow belongs to me. That's right. But yeah, so I just think that's a... And, and yeah, Christopher Reeve is great in this movie. It's nice to see him in something else. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> like for sure. Getting the chance to stretch his acting muscles. And his legs. Oh, Jason. Yeah, I know, that's terrible. But, you know, it, it is nice to see him when he was like, and he's in his prime at this point. And, he's, and you're right, he's great. This it, it's actually kind of sad, too, to see him when they show him later as an older man, because you're like, wow, he never really got to get to that, get to that stage. Like, no. I mean, he, he did, he did get a, he did, you know, he had his accident. He lived for several years after, but definitely not as long as he's portrayed to be in the movie. No, certainly not. No. And, and I think this was like two years before the, before the accident. Yeah. Was, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Real close. Sometime in the mid nineties. Um, I mean, and, and let's talk about, so we're talking about, you know, his non-reaction or his way of processing his, his reactions to things. I mean, mm. I think a huge portion of this movie should be dedicated to the scene where his father passes away. Yes. Where uh, Mr. Stevens senior passes away. Yeah. It's quite nice. It's, um, it is, you know, because they have that moment and he tells him, he's like, I got to tell you something. And he quietly stands there and he tells him, oh, I didn't love your mom. Or at least I, I fell out of love with your mom. Mm-hmm. And, and did he say that he carried on? Uh, I think he said she was carrying on. She was carrying on. Oh, okay. So he tells him a shitty fact about his mother. But uh, yeah. And, but then he says he's proud of him and calls him Jim. And Anthony Hopkins doesn't say anything really until I think okay. it, until the very end. He says something like, uh, We'll speak in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he walks out. And then and that's the one... last. And that's oh. just I was gonna say that's the last time they talk. That's the last conversation they have. And there is one scene where it almost looks like he squeezed a tear out of his eye. Did you notice yeah. that scene? No, I didn't. Uh, so was that? There, there's a scene later where he's speaking with Hugh Grant, and it's because of something that happened earlier with like Emma Thompson's character, Miss Kenton. But he literally squeezes his eyelid for a moment and just like. Uh, flicks his hand as if it's like a tear. It's almost hmm. like he got so close to that point. Yeah. But he's like, no, no, not today. Maintain dignity. Yeah. So the, the whole thing with his dad, I mean, he goes, he's he's in the process. You know, we heard the speech from Christopher Reeve. He's at the, at that banquet. He's told that his father is ill. Um, I mean, very much like, oh, and Miss Kenton tells him like, you know, he died four minutes ago, and his reaction is very much like, oh, well, um, I'm very busy right now. Yeah. Like it's it's just it's crazy. Like he has to suppress all these emotions. And we know like, you know, in another movie, maybe with another character, you'd say, oh, man, this guy's a sociopath. That's clearly Mm. not the the, clearly not the situation here. I don't think. No, because this is what his whole life has trained him for in in many ways, is that he's meant to be this stone faced, just like steady as she goes to a personality that is there to kind of keep everybody he he's like the moral center of of the house in that way because he has to maintain that that stoicism and and everybody I think works off that. Well, yeah, because I mean, he he's he's basically the direct boss under Darlington. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know he runs everything. I mean, that's usually the case with the butler. They're like the top servant, right? So mm-hmm. he needs he in it's, it's similar to politics, you know. It's like he has to keep up appearances. He yeah, he's almost like the uh, like the press secretary. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. He's the Kellyanne Conway of Lord Darlington's house. Uh, uh don't even. <laughs> Does that mean his husband is very critical of Lord Darlington? Oh, AKA, yes, yes. A.K.A. Hugh Grant? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so I have a question about that, yeah. that character. I know what, what you're going to mention. I feel like was, I know what you're going to mention. What was the deal with their introduction? So, like, Lord Darlington goes to him. We have this scene in the list here. But Lord Darlington goes to the butler. He's like, eh, or goes to Stevens, and is like, okay, I need you to do something for me. And it's kind of awkward. I don't really want to do it. So uh, I'm going to need you. My, my, my nephew is coming to visit and my he godson. really hasn't. Yeah. My, or godson. I thought it was his nephew. Weird. No, I uh, think it's just, anyway, it doesn't matter. Whatever. He's, he's, a, uh, he's like, yeah, he's coming to visit and I need you to go basically explain the birds and the bees to him. And they have a wonderfully vague conversation about it where Anthony Hopkins doesn't quite understand <laughs> what he, what he means. He's like, Oh, you know, birds, bees, that sort of thing. And so he wants him to go we, explain sex to this kid. Should we play it? Yeah. Play the scene. Keep in mind, Hugh Grant is like at least a 25-year-old man. Well, and then that's the funny joke is that he goes and walks up to him and this dude turns around and he's trying to light a cigarette in the garden and he's like, oh, hello. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, I was going to ask you, well, we'll talk about it after because I do have a question for you. Sure. But I do have something to convey to you rather urgently, sir. And if I may be permitted, I'll come straight to the point. Um, perhaps you will have noticed this morning, sir, the ducks and the geese by the pond. Ducks and geese. No, I don't think so, Stevens. Well, perhaps the the birds and the flowers, then, or the um, uh, the shrubs uh, and the bees. No, I've not seen any bees. Yes. Well, this is, in fact, not the best time of the year to see them in their full glory, sir. What, the bees? Uh, no, sir. What I'm trying to say, sir, is that with the arrival of spring, we shall see a most remarkable and profound change in all these surroundings, sir. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure the, yes. the grounds are not at their best just now. Yes, sir. But I have to say, I wasn't really paying much attention to the uh, uh-huh. old glories of nature because uh, it's all rather worrying. You know, um, Dupont de Vries has just arrived in the foulest mood imaginable, which is the last thing anyone wants. Oh, Monsieur Dupont de Vries arrived, sir? Uh? Yeah, half an hour ago, in a really foul mood. Oh, in that case, um, please excuse me. I, I, I'd better go and attend to him, sir. Right you are, Stevens. It was uh, kind of you to have come to talk to me. Not at all, sir. Um, in fact, I do have uh, one or two words more to convey to you on the topic of, um, well, as you uh, put it most admirably, sir, uh, the glories of nature, uh, but it will have to wait for another occasion, sir. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that then, Stevens. I'm more of a fish man myself. Fish, sir? Yes, I know all about fish, fresh water and salt. <laughs> ah. Well, all living creatures would be relevant to our discussion, sir. If you will excuse me, I had no idea that Monsieur Dupont de had arrived, sir. Thank you. Okay, so do you think the fish <laughs> the fish is a is a dirty reference to something? Well, that's what I was wondering is was does Hugh Grant think that uh James is trying to fuck him? And that that was him in mean, his like Lawrence <laughs> Olivier style way of being like, No, I like ladies. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Um I do think um I, I was gonna ask you, so do you think Mr. Stevens has no idea what he's supposed to tell him? Well, I think he's just as confused as I am. I think he just walks up. And he's like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Like, what is do, the point of this? <laughs> do you think he knows what Darlington means about birds and the bees, though? He doesn't strike me as someone who's ever been sexual in his life. Well, that's well, I'm also like, are we misinterpreting what he's trying to do here? Because it, I mean, like, why? I just don't 
did I miss something? Like, why did Darlington like? Is Darlington have a? Does, is he have some weird sense of humor? And he's just trying to fuck with his butler by sending him out to explain to his clearly adult godson uh, how sex works. No, I think Darlington is just so detached that. I mean, that's the other possibility. Yeah, that he 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 has this image of his godson as a little boy, and he's like, oh, he's coming over. You're gonna have to explain the birds and the bees to him. But yeah, why honestly, specifically? Did his mother call and be like, "Oh, he just doesn't have a good handle on these things"? Could somebody explain it to him? <laughs> I, I think it's just, I think it's just Darlington so detached that it's like, "Oh, that's something you have to do, isn't it?" Yes, yes. And of course, every every godfather has to explain how one makes love to a woman to one's godson. That, that's what the 1972 film is about, right? Yes, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola. It's just Marlon Brando, uh, just explaining how you uh, use butter in sex. I was gonna say that's Last Tango in Paris, not The Godfather. Well, he was get he was warming up for Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> oh, was he ever? <laughs> that is an unfortunate behind the scenes story, but we'll not get to that. <laughs> behind the scenes, all right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That director should have gone to prison. But anyway, probably for multiple things. But anyways, yeah, yeah. That's just one of the things. Um. But yeah, there's that. I think that scene is where, and that's the thing too. This movie is very funny. Yeah, there are yeah. lots of very funny parts of this movie. Yeah, the, the 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 British don't often get the reputation they deserve as being quite funny, even when they're very you know uh, uh, posh and and have a stick up their ass. They can still be quite dry and funny. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I I do like too that I mean Hugh Grant. I like that Hugh Grant is probably the most outside of like the leads, he's probably the nicest person in the movie. And I think he's the only one that really notices when Stevens is off, like something is not right. Yes. Um, he calls him out on at least a couple different times twice. And what's interesting is he has the same response both times, which tells me that this is his way of coding that he is legitimately upset because the first time it's when his father has died and he comes right back down to the party and does his work and says, no, I might just be a little bit tired. It's been a long day. And then, and then, you know, not to mention Darlington has that line that makes you just boil with rage inside where he's like, well, it's been a hard day for both of us, I think. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're, you're, his father died, but okay, fuck you. <laughs> um, but there's the, there's the thing where he's like, oh yeah, you know, oh, I'm just a little bit tired. And the next time he says that is later when Miss Kenton uh, basically tells him that she's accepted a man's proposal. Yes. And then he goes and meets with Hugh Grant and, you know, Hugh Grant's like, well, you, you, are you upset? And he just says again, no, I'm just a little bit tired. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's interesting. Did we ever get an answer? So uh, that's later in the movie, the scene where she explains to him that she's accepted a proposal from Mr. Tom, uh, Mr. Ben, Mr. Ben. Yeah. Mr. Ben, Thomas yeah. Ben, Thomas Ben, Tom uh, proposed to her that they would go off and, and set up a little bed and breakfast or I guess a boarding house to be a better term mm-hmm. and live their lives that way. And so she comes back to the house escorted by two police officers. Now, is did I miss something or was that ever explained? <laughs> I, I'm assuming the extra security was because of who was in the house. OK. Because they okay, have that, that is that sense. is like their that is like their big yeah okay meeting, okay right? yeah I didn't I didn't think about that but yes absolutely if you've got the prime minister of England and the German ambassador in there in 1938 or whatever okay yeah you would probably have a police presence at the house so I'll tell you what I thought that was going to be yeah I thought that was going to be um them thinking she was Jewish ah and something bad really bad was going to happen 
Um, But since we're talking, since I mentioned that, can we talk about the housekeepers? Yeah, so remember how I was talking about how uh, Lord Darlington was pretty much sympathizing with the Germans and maybe not the Nazis and overlooking the Nazi stuff? Well, this this is where this becomes a problem, really, because it's clearly sunk into his skull a little bit. He had been talking with the character in the movie um what's the guy's name in the movie here uh jeffrey wren jeffrey wren yes who is based on a a famous british fascist sir oswald Mm mosley uh and wren goes on about racial purity laws and how germany's doing this thing that needs to be done and maybe uh england wouldn't be declining into the mess it was if they had these laws and so it gets stuck into his head and he starts reading some literature and then he ends up firing these two serving girls simply because they're Jewish. Even though they're perfectly suited for the job, uh, he just wants to get rid of them because they're Jewish. Because he doesn't want – he thinks that that's like a problem because of all the shit he's been absorbing from these people he's trying to be nice to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Well, and I mean he tells Stevens to do it. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't even have the balls to do it himself. He, yeah. he is not a man who embodies the Ned Stark quote. You know, he who passes the sentence should swing the sword. No, not this guy. That's the butler's job. <laughs> and and this makes Miss Ken, Miss Kenton very upset because she she realizes the gravity of the situation, which I yeah. don't think Stevens either a does realize it or b is choosing to ignore the repercussions. Yeah, these are because, refugees, and they could get sent back to Germany. And and God knows it wasn't a safe place for Jewish people in Germany at that time. Certainly not. So that's a real that's a real moment there where you're like, well, this this that's a delicate moment in a movie, I think, because you're like, wow, this could really sway the audience. They could never be back on Steven's side again after this. Yeah. And and so she makes this passionate like uh, appeal to him and he shuts her down and is basically like, no, that's the boss's decision. So that's what we do. And then and even and then. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, he even makes a reference to saying, like, well, you know, he's obviously much more enlightened than we are. He must know something about Jewry. Yeah, yeah, Jewry. <laughs> yeah. Using that word, Jewry. But, Which, again, uh, I think that's just his subservient attitude. Yeah, no, he's he's just, yeah, yeah, exactly. He knows his place, he knows his job, and his job is not to tell the boss how to run the house. His mm-hmm. job is to run the house. Exactly. Um, but then it's interesting that later in the movie, when they're kind of having a casual conversation, he mentions to her offhandedly how upset he was when those girls were dismissed. And she's like, well, why the fuck didn't you say anything then? Jesus. And he's just like, well, you know, I mean, uh, this is, I figured he knew something was going, I figured he knew what he was doing, you know? Well, and it's interesting because again, we talk about like, we talked earlier about Darlington being a complex character because later on in the film, the reason they have that conversation is because Darlington legitimately is like, we should find out if those girls are okay. Yeah, I think he starts to realize the error of his ways and is trying to maybe look into them. And now now James had looked into getting them a place at a different house, but there was only one position available. And they and didn't want to separate. They didn't want to separate, and that was the last he had kind of heard from them. Yeah, we don't really get a, a resolution on that. We we I think we do know they went back to Germany, so we can only imagine it didn't end well for them. Yeah, there's yeah, it's unlikely there's it did. Implications of it. Um, mm. but nothing, that's another, another strong point of this movie is that not a lot is spelled out for you. It's not blatant and in your face. No. No. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's interesting that they have Darlington go back on that a little bit and be like, oh, just make sure they're okay and maybe get them jobs. Like, I don't know why I did that. I think I went too far. Like, you know, it's, it's, 
It's yeah. and it's the strength of the actor too, obviously. Yes. yes, and and that character basically plays out through the movie that he clearly regrets what he has done. He is then, I think he. They say he was lucky he didn't get charged with treason after the war was over. But he tried uh, but, suing a newspaper for libel, and then eventually yeah. just basically died of a broken heart. They said. Yeah, he, he sued them for libel, but as as I don't know. Uh, well, British libel law is really fucked because usually the person that sues for libel has a huge advantage because it's up for the def- up to the defendant to prove what they said was true. Oh, okay. Versus, I think American libel law, where if if I sue somebody for libel, I have to prove what they're saying is false. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So. So he loses that case, even though he's in the stronger position. I guess they were cleared out to be like, well, he was helping Germans out, so clearly he was a traitor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has that 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 you know that whole thing hanging over him. It's kind of hard to get any kind of advantage when you're when you're when you've done that sort of thing. Yeah, which is funny because like actual actual Nazis managed to to reform their images after the war and go into like West German politics. <laughs> Oh, did you see the uh, black shirts that showed up? That's another fascist uh, British thing. The when they come into the house and they've got all these guys in these black uh, long sleeve shirts and ties, and they've got uh, Sam Brown belts on. Those are, I assume, the BUF, the British Union of Fascists, which was the the British uh, Nazi supporting uh, group in the 30s, led by Sir Oswald Mosley. By the way, interesting fact: uh, until a few years ago, the head of uh, F1. F1 Racing was a guy named Max Mosley, who was the son of Sir Oswald Mosley. And do you know why Max Mosley is no longer the head of F1? Hmm. Because Max Mosley was photographed uh, in having a sex party with French prostitutes, where the French prostitutes were dressed as, wait for it, Holocaust uh, uh, like prisoners in the oh, striped pajamas. God. Yeah. 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 Yeah, fun world Yikes. we live in, eh? Yikes. Mm. Well, on a lighter note, <laughs> let, let's let's go back to the um to the main relationship in the movie again just for a moment. Um because I mean, that's like that's the at the core of this movie, I think lies the relationship between Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton. And I think this scene is kind of um is her last ditch effort. One of her last ditch efforts is uh he's he's in his study and he doesn't go there very often because he's working most of the time. But he's in his study and he's reading a book. And she really wants to see what his book is. And he won't tell her what his book is. Yeah. Let's listen to that scene, Jason. Let me see it. Let me see your book. Please leave me alone, Miss Kenton. Why won't you show me your book? This is my private time. You're invading it. Oh, is that so? Yes. I'm invading your private time, am I? Yes. What's in that book? Come on, let me see. Or are you protecting me? Is that what you're doing? Would I be shocked? Would it ruin my character? Let me see it.
pointless at all. It's just a sentimental old love story. Yes. I read these books, any books, to develop my command and knowledge of the English language. I read to further my education, Miss Kenton. I really must ask you, please, not to disturb the few moments I have to myself. Yeah, so I think that's a that's a very interesting scene because that is her. She finally sees an in like, oh, I'm probably gonna get, I'm finally gonna get a taste of like what he's into, like something, yeah. right? Something outside of this this life. And mm. what has he got but this ordinary romance novel that tells her absolutely nothing? Yeah, and and that's part of what's fascinating about her interest in him is that for her it seems to be like she just wants to pry in a little bit. She just wants to get in there. To, to see a little bit of who he is as a person because he's got so many defenses up, so many shields blocking her from getting in there. And, and it is an obsession, I think, for her almost uh, at a certain point. And she, yeah, you're right. Just as you said, she thought that this was her moment to get in there and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting, too, that when she goes to get the book, she basically pries his fingers from the book in a way that's reminiscent of the way he had to pry his father's fingers off the uh, cart. Yes, I, I wrote that down. Too. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. It's like he's just like just like his father. He's like hanging on to the to what he knows. Yes. Like it's almost like you can't take this away from me or like I don't want you. I don't want you in. Like don't open the gate. <laughs> no, exactly. Um. Yeah, it's really interesting because Stevens is like, and you can tell he's very uncomfortable in this scene um, because she's invading his, the one area where he doesn't have to pretend to, you know, hide him, his own, his real feelings, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And he feels like uh, almost attacked where, you know, he says, these are my few moments. Please, please don't come in here. Like, like, who knows? Maybe he just goes in there and fucking cries. Like, I don't know. Well, and that's and that's compounded in that moment, too, by the fact that she's totally invading his personal space by getting basically up in his face and prying the book from his hands, you know, something that he's probably not used to that, that, you know, that's just not done. Well, and I mean, and it's interesting that when she pries it from his hands, like he he kind of tries to hang on, but there's nothing else he can really do. Like, he's not going to hit anyone. What is he going to do? Like, pull the book back and just clock her across the face and be like, fuck off, eh? No, like that's absolutely not his character. No, no. So it, it's 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 kind of like he's backed into a corner and there's absolutely nothing he can do other than beg her to to stop. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I just think I, I think their their chemistry obviously it's not meant to be electric, but I think um, their chemistry is very good for this type of role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This 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 most British of romances. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it's nice that Emma Thompson is in more than one movie on this list. Yes, thankfully. She's wonderful, isn't she? Uh, Anthony Hopkins, is, this is his only movie he's on this list, though. Damn. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I don't know what else other British movies he would that would make it, honestly. Like, he's done a lot of Hollywood stuff. I mean, Thor's British, right? Because Kenneth Branagh directed it. If you put Thor on this list, Jason, I will be most happy. <laughs> but if know. you put Thor on this list, you have to put Thor Ragnarok, because that's the best one. Okay, well... Is that the third one? It is. Okay. It's the one directed by Taika Waititi. Mm, Taika Waititi, I like him. What do you think about the um, 
What do you think about the ending? The ending is, of course, we um, he tries to get her back. He tries to get Miss Kenton back to 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 return to uh, you know serve the house because exactly. now Mr. Stevens works for uh, Jack Lewis, uh, Christopher Reeve. Tries to get her back. She says, "You know what? I can't. I have a daughter now with yeah. uh, with Mr. Ben. Um, you know, she's. I think she's she's about to have a daughter, so she's about to be a grandmother. Yeah. And she says, "I can't come back now." Yeah. Um, uh, and then, and then, and then after that, we have a moment where, where Mr. Stevens goes back to the house and there's a moment where a pigeon gets caught in the house and eventually they get it out the window. And that's kind of how the movie ends. Like yeah. I wrote down, like, this is some kind of metaphor going on here. It could be. I, I like that. It's, it's like a very, again, a very British take on what the ending of a different romantic movie might be, because in a different movie, you know, he realizes the errors of error of his ways. He comes running to the train station and he grabs her and they have a moment of embrace. And then it's either, you know, yes, I will come with you or like, I can't, I can't. I have a life to go back to. But it's not that it's literally he goes to, to get her job back. Like he's not trying to win her. He's not trying to pursue that, even though that is clearly there in the back of his head. There, there's always that. But he's mm-hmm. there just being like, would you please come back and work for us? And she just can't because her life is there. And because she said that she's come to love her husband, which I found was an interesting counterpoint to the father, where the father said he fell out of love with, with James's mother. Mm-hmm. This uh, 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 Sally, she eventually came to love Mr. Ben or Tom. They, 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 not initially. She realized she kind of made a big mistake when she did it all. But uh, uh, she real eventually comes to love him, I guess, in the way that you love someone who is kind of dependent on you. And I wonder if, like, the whole thing with the father saying he fell out of love with um, Mr. Stevens' mother yeah. is, sort of explains his stance on stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, because maybe, the, the, maybe that's not something that was surprising to him when his father told him, you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe maybe he saw his father's work suffer <laughs> while yeah. he was being, uh, you know, going through that stuff and thought, OK, well, that's why you don't get into these romantic entanglements. And I mean, if the mother was having affairs, I mean, he maybe he wouldn't have 100 percent known that, but he probably would have had some indication of that. Mm-hmm. And that may that may also have steered him away from, you know, or steered him more towards like working, working, working to work rather than trying to have any kind of life, romantic mm-hmm. life. Mm. I also found it interesting too. Like I was expecting this big, like kind of reunion moment, like this kind of dramatic moment of them seeing each other. But when they see each other for the first time, after all these years in the restaurant, it's very casual. Yeah. It's very like, Oh, hello. Like, Oh, it's so good to see you. You haven't changed a bit. Like that sort of thing. Like it wasn't, I I thought there'd be a little more like drama to it, but there wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that's not what this is about. (laughs) No, much like, much like we talked when we talked about brief encounter, it's, it's handled in a very realistic way. Yeah. Like there, there's no, like you said, there's no chasing down the train. There's no hug or kiss in the rain. Like it's not, this is not what this is. No. <laughs> um, I do think, it, uh, he met, it's interesting cause I missed this the first time I went back a little bit, but he mentions in passing that Hugh Grant, uh, like Cardinal, um, pa- passed away in the war. Yeah. And yeah. he mentions that of course Darlington died, but like, I, I totally missed that the first time cause he yeah. says it so casually, yeah, uh, I, I I missed the fact that Hugh Grant had 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 gone. I knew Darlington had died, but uh, yeah, he said he, he said he he passed away in the war. Is was what hmm. he said. Yeah, and it's just it's another it's another example of her trying to get a reaction from him even then because she says you know oh I'm so sorry and then he just immediately moves on. It's like how many times when his father dies does she say oh I give you my condolences 
and yeah. you get the feeling that she, on the third time she she means it, but she's also just trying to get him to react, like just him, just yeah, just to give her a real emotional reaction. In she even asks him just... at one point if he finds some some woman attractive, and he doesn't even comment on that. He's like, I've just been zoning out your your chatter. <laughs> 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 yeah, right. She's like, oh, is there a real human in that mind of yours somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 wild. And then, of course, the last moment of the movie before, obviously, the scene with the pigeon is is so um, it's I don't know if it's like a, a, a beautiful moment or if it's like really sad because she clearly has not cracked him in any way. I mean, sort of, but not really. Um, and they, they kind of like, they hold hands as she's leaving and, you know, he says, she says, I'll probably never see you again. And she's breaking, she's just like bursting into tears yeah. as she's on, by the way, Emma Thompson, again, I will stress this again after the sense and sensibility episode, one of the best on-screen criers I've ever seen. Um, a just feels... she, she's a master at, or a mistress at it. She is the mistress <laughs> of on-screen crying. She is. It feels very real. Um, and she's doing that as the, you know, as the, the, the trolley, trolley bus. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. As the bus is, uh, taking off and he, he's just stoic, you know, he's just watching. Yeah. I like that scene. I like where that scene took place on like that boardwalk type thing or pier or whatever it is that they're sitting on. And it also made me laugh because of how easily uh, impressed people in the thirties were because everybody's standing around and then the colored fluorescent lights flick on and everybody goes, Oh, and they all start applauding. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. She mentions, you know, um, the line where right there where she says, you know, people generally are, are much happier in the evenings. They can relax. And that just made me think of like, Oh, that's when they have to work the most. <laughs> Like yeah, exactly. the evenings are not a time for them to, for, for people in the service industry to rely or the people, you know, the Butler industry. That's go time. Exactly. That's like their busiest time. Um, yeah. but yeah. And, and I mean, I do want to get into a little bit of the background of this movie too, uh, before we, uh, and, and obviously like all any, any bits and bobs you have, we got to get those into, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about the background. So, this and and I know I uh, you may have some notes on this too, but this was a f- adaptation of a novel, right? Yes. yes. Um, it was going to be directed by Mike Nichols, the guy who directed the uh, the Graduate, and it was going to be written by Harold Pinter, who we knew we know as someone who worked on the the Go Between. Um, mm-hmm. But P- some of Pinter's script was used in this film, but while he was paid for his work, he asked to have his name removed from the credits. Uh, he basically said, you know, I learned my lesson after uh, they revised my script for The Handmaid's Tale, mm. which uh, he's talking about the 1990 version. Um, he says that was, uh, it, was that made? That was actually made. That, was, that made? was made. Oh, we'll, we'll listen to it here in a second. Um, but while his uh, his script was radically revised, um, he actually said, I don't want my name anywhere in the credits. Uh, and Mike Nichols, of course, was no longer the director, but he's still credited as a producer, um, which tells you how much work some producers do. <laughs> but anyway, um, I do want to I do want to give you a, uh, maybe this will explain why Harold Pinter was a little iffy about leaving his name on scripts that uh, get revised without his knowing. This is the this is a trailer. Let's just listen to a little bit of the trailer for, from The Handmaid's Tale, 1990. <laughs> Once upon a time in the recent future, a country went wrong. The country was called the Republic of Gilead. Ecological disasters ravaged the land, resulting in civil war, 
political turmoil, and widespread sterility. Only a very few women could still bear children. These women were called handmaids. What'd you do? How'd they get you? We tried to cross the border. What about you? Gender treachery. I like girls. Christ, they could have sent you to the colonies. They don't send you to the colonies if your ovaries are still jumping. Rachel had no children. Rachel said, Give me children, or else I shall die. I thought I'd like to get to know you a little. Get to know me? Yes. She's probably sterile. Don't they test them, the men? No. She couldn't conceive, could she? So what happened to her? She hung herself. Maybe you should try it another way. What other way? Another man. What about the commander? We just won't tell him, will we? I'm going to have a baby. Hell, I hated that. That was a really old school style trailer for a movie that came out in 1990. That felt like a trailer from the 70s. <laughs> well, and also I think we can agree that movie looked ridiculous. That the version that version of the movie looks ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, I, I've seen I think the first episode of the TV version and it wasn't bad, but yeah, that mm-hmm. does look pretty silly. <laughs> um, so maybe we can forgive him for not wanting to leave his name on this thing. Uh, <laughs> I do want to talk a little a little bit just briefly too on Merchant Ivory Productions since we're talking about it now as our first sure. uh, four ray into that um we talked about how as a uh, director james ivory producer Ish- ishmael merchant and writer ruth prower jabavala um mm. so the initial goal of this company was to make english language films in india aimed at like the international market yeah. uh they of course didn't have a whole lot of success for a while uh what what is funny is that uh, Ishmael Merchant once said it's a strange marriage we have I am an Indian Muslim Ruth is a German Jew and Jim is a Protestant American someone once described us as a three-headed god maybe they should have called us a three-headed monster uh, <laughs> the expression uh, Merchant Ivory film eventually became such a a thing like such a well-known thing that it almost is like its own genre yeah, uh, it, it, when I think Merchant Ivory film, I think of like lush period drama yeah. that is usually Oscar bait. Yeah, lavish sets, top British actors playing genteel cool. characters. Yes. Um, and you know the main theme often surrounded a house. Mm. Like there's the other the other movie on this list, uh, A Room with a View, is all about a house. <laughs> it's all about one house setting where most of the movie takes place. So I think that's interesting. That's an alternate version of Room at the Top, I assume. Room with a View. That's like the guy across the hallway. Uh, sure. And say, how you doing, Joe Lampton? Hey, and that's it. That's the cameo. Yeah, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> but speaking of Bob's, Jason, get some more bits and bobs for us. Yeah, I got a couple little things here. Jason's old bits and bobs. Uh, I, I they got a lot of old cars for this movie. I was impressed. They there are some like kind of over like when they fly over the estate and you see all the cars parked out front or when Anthony Hopkins goes to drive out onto the road and there's just a ton of cars on the road. Like they really went all out getting cars. for this movie, So mm-hmm. good for them. Uh, in Christopher Reeve early in the movie, when they're talking, um, he, he says son of a gun, but it looks like it was dubbed. It looks like he might've said son of a bitch, but then they dubbed it. You know what? That's interesting because this movie is PG, not PG-13. So that's probably what that may have been for. I'm guessing Uh, they thought if we take that out, we can get a lower rating. 
I, I read a little bit up on the book and, and the book is very similar to the movie, but the kind of one element that stood out that they didn't actually put in the movie had to do with the relationship between uh, uh, Congressman Lewis and um, James. Now, first off in the book, Congressman Lewis, uh, as he is in the movie, is actually two separate characters. There's Congressman mm-hmm. Lewis. But then there's also Mr. I think Mr. Bardal or something like that. Who's actually the guy that buys the house and he's also an American. So yes. they kind of combine them into one character, and in the book, uh, Bartle and, um, and Bartle James. Be, be, and James, but Bartle being an American wants James to banter with him, like yeah. he he treats him much more casually, and we see this in the movie with Lewis too. He clearly treats him much more casually than other uh, uh, lords of, of his house have. So in the book, he he kind of expects him to banter with with uh, Lewis or, or with Bartle in the book. And, and so uh, James takes time to actually like study banter and, and try to like learn to kind of be funny and, and be able to like go toe to toe with the guy, okay. which is a cool idea. And I kind of wish, I mean, this movie's already kind of long enough as is, but that would have mm-hmm. been something fun to see of him trying to like, you know, just like be jovial with this guy. I, um, I do like how we see a different relationship forming though. Like yes, a different yes. kind of, like you said, a different kind of, um, lord butler relationship with lewis and uh stevens yes absolutely just just a lot more casual mm-hmm. um i i love in movies that happen before the war when we get uh lines like the Fuhrer is a man of peace oh yeah great line. or germany or when, when the when the french guy goes germany wants uh peace as much as we do <laughs> oh do they <laughs> but it always it always always lets us future people just chuckle a little bit to ourselves, you know, condescendingly, like you don't know what you're in for. Like the fresh prince is going to have a movie career. Uh, I, I also like that moment, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, that was what that was <laughs> Jersey, uh, Jersey girl. girl. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote down, does Hugh Grant want to fuck Stevens? And I was wondering that too, because it could have been. Was, did he think Stevens was trying to fuck him, or was he trying to fuck Stevens? I don't know. I also got to say uh, the idea of Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant of all people being told what sex is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he knows. He knows. We saw four weddings and a funeral. He knows what's going on. We uh, we 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 saw the we we saw parts of his real life. We know. I I enjoyed how Anthony Hopkins' character in the in the future, uh, of course, always denies his Nazi connections, just like mm. any good British person would. <laughs> until until that one moment. Yes, until that moment when he, after he's broken, his car is broken down and he's talked to this guy for a while, he finally opens up to him and tells him that he actually was worked for Lord Darlington. And then, of course, the guy's really interested in if he believed all the stuff that Lord Darlington was around, the Nazism and everything. And, you know, he just gave his usual, like, well, I was there as a butler and I didn't listen to any of those conversations and whatever. And I think that's really interesting that his loyalty is so to that point where he won't even talk down of him. He'll either A, um, pretend to not know him like he did at the grocery store mm-hmm. or B like he doesn't, like he said later on, um, just says, you know what? He was good to me and I liked him and we had a good rapport and I've got nothing bad to say about him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see. What else do I have here? Oh, I also loved uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant's line and I'm going to use this in life. If I remember it, uh, where he's trying to explain to, he, or he's explaining to to James what's going on, like what, what all these people are doing in the library and what they're trying to, you know, to give the Sudetenland back to the Germans. And he's having trouble. And he goes, oh, if I weren't so drunk, I could make you understand. <laughs> it made me laugh. I feel like I've said that before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I like the moment. I, I thought this was going to lead to more, but I do like the moment when he's walking through the servant stairway and he has the bottle of wine and he drops it and he goes, damn it. Like he actually, he actually reacts and has an emotional moment and it is the most strong emotional moment he has in the whole movie. And I was convinced that was going to be like in Unforgiven when Clint Eastwood takes the drink. Like I thought he was just going to go fucking nuts and kill everybody or do something crazy. But uh, did not. And nope. This is a British movie, and he took the British uh, path and and suffered in quiet desperation. I do think it's interesting that the moment that makes him break like that is a work related moment, though. Yes, exactly. It's exactly. Got it's, nothing to do with personal life. Nothing to do with him. But yeah, because work is so foremost, he just wastes a bottle of wine, and that is enough to make him scream out in frustration. Yeah. Uh, I think that's all I have. Yeah, on that note, then, before we get to the, uh, talking about the Oscars, because there's some talk here, there's some talk here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to play one last clip, and it's from the moment where we talked about Jeffrey Wren. Um, he's over and he, tra- he th- he's trying to argue that we shouldn't listen to the common people because the common people have no opinions. It should be left up to the nobles, should be left up to the leaders of this world. And he asks um, Mr. Stevens his opinion on things. And I just think this is a really interesting scene, too. My good man, I have a question for you. Yes, sir? Do you suppose the debt situation regarding America is a significant factor in the present low levels of trade? Or do you suppose this is a red herring and that the abandonment of the gold standard is at the root of the problem? I'm sorry, sir, but I'm unable to be of assistance in this matter. Oh, dear, what a pity. Well, perhaps you can help us on another matter. Oh, no. Do you think that the currency problem in Europe would be alleviated by an arms agreement between the French and the Bolsheviks? I'm sorry, sir, but I'm unable to be of assistance in this matter. Very well, Stevenson and Bill. Uh, One moment, Darlington. I have another question to put to our good man here. (laughs) My good fellow, do you share our opinion? But Monsieur de Ladier's recent speech on the situation in North Africa was simply a ruse to scupper the nationalist fringe of his own domestic party. I'm sorry, sir. I'm unable to be of assistance in any of these matters. You see, gentlemen, our good man here is unable to assist us in these matters. And yet, we still go along with the notion that this nation's decisions be left in the hands of our good man here and a few millions like him. You may as well ask a committee of the Mother's Union to organize a war campaign. It seems like that's the one point in the movie, maybe, where he's trying very hard not to say anything. Yeah. Because he kind of he makes the move like he's going to say something, and he kind of moves his head around, but he doesn't, obviously, because he's a professional. Well, and it's funny, because that's like the scene where he's most confronted with that, with yeah. with those ideals, right? And yeah. he has to... He's like, no, 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 nothing. I can't say anything. I don't have an opinion. <laughs> well, and I also and, get the fa- I also get the sense he doesn't really follow politics like much. Probably like not. Maybe isn't reading the newspaper constantly. He certainly irons them. Uh, the, so maybe he pick up something. But the interesting thing in that scene to look at too is Darlington's reactions the whole time. So I'm not sure if he's like worried that Stevens is going to say something, or if he's just concerned and doesn't think this guy should be harassing his butler. I think it's the latter. I think that Darlington okay. does actually give a shit about Stevens. And he's literally like just wants to get him out of the room because he feels like he's being mocked 
but he also doesn't these are also very powerful people and friends of his that he doesn't want to just outright say like leave my butler the fuck alone <laughs> but yeah no I, I think he's just uncomfortable by the whole thing uh, yeah and i mean he does also have a moment earlier on in the movie when i mean yes of course there are other motives but when when steven's father takes ill or when he you know when he falls and everyone's kind of gathered around he does seem genuinely concerned for you know Stevens's father yeah. um even though he has that later scene where he's like I don't think he should you know serve at the table um but it's very important but also like he's probably going to get very sick if he does that yeah and and <laughs> so I think I, I think he's coming from a similar place that that uh, uh, uh Sally is too where she's telling because she, she's basically told him the same thing that you need to put your dad on different duties because yeah. this is he can't be doing this right now he's not suited for it Yep, and and she points out little things that he does, and mm. Stevens is very dismissive of it. But then, as we see in another scene, um, he's dismissive of it. But then, as soon as she leaves the room, he immediately picks up after him. Yeah, exactly. Like he's very he's very uh, protective almost of uh, his father. Um, he is. It's an interesting relationship because yeah. they don't seem awfully close. He calls him Mister Stevens to his face not father and and the one time he does refer to him as father he refers to him as father in the third person like right if he yeah. the father wishes yeah or something yeah. like that yeah it's it's yeah this movie is very british <laughs> yes oh super it might, it might be the most british movie we've watched so far i don't know I, it's definitely in the running i think it, i think it's close there's another movie there, interestingly interestingly enough too there's another movie on this list called the servant and oh. james fox essentially all plays the uh the rich person role again oh that should so, be fun i think that's i think that's kind of cool um yeah. this movie jason goes to the oscars Woo-hoo! and it's one of those movies that gets nominated for eight oscars and doesn't win any damn yeah damn. well this was this 1993 schindler's list came out ah well that's kind of so, hard to compete with <laughs> so besides the um it it it, it uh, goes up for best costume design loses it to a movie called the age of innocence yeah. uh best ad- uh sorry um best actress uh holly hunter in the piano wins that year over emma thompson was that uh, another holocaust movie the piano yeah i don't believe so. no no that's a no she's a she, she's um she's a mute I'm and thinking she's, of The Pianist. Yeah, that's a different movie. <laughs> um, Tom Hanks wins Best Actor that year for Philadelphia. All right, okay. Jeez, um, that's a year of heavyweights. So every other award, the following awards were all won by Schindler's List. So it's up for Best Art Direction, Best Original Score, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. All of those won by Schindler's List. Wow. At the BAFTAs, it is also nominated for a ton of awards and does manage to win one, though. Uh, Nominated for uh, Best Film, loses to Schindler's List. Best Director, loses to Schindler's List. Adapted Screenplay, Schindler's List. Cinematography, Schindler's List. Best Actress, Holly Hunter for the Piano. And it wins, it does win, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins. Yay! The uh, The movie cost $15 million budget. And it made about 60, $64 million at the box office. That's not too bad. Not too sure. Yeah. So, Jason, I guess we get to the ultimate question here. What did you think about this movie? It's place on the list. All that good stuff. I think it might deserve to be a little higher. It's what, 64? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, really good movie. I, I see because when I originally had uh, I heard of this movie years ago, I feel like it was on The Simpsons or something like that. Some like just offhanded reference to uh, this movie. And I'd seen the poster before. And of course, my assumption was that this was a movie about a butler who falls in love with his lady. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's just what I thought. That's what uh, I thought, too, so, uh, minutes before watching this. Yeah. And so going into it and then seeing this whole like political uh, backstory, you know, related to the Munich Agreement, I was really surprised. <laughs> so yeah. this movie and between that, that cool kind of background thing that's going on and then having this. Um, these characters and the story that were just compelling to me. Like I really did kind of get lost in this movie. It was really entertaining. Um, I just, I loved everybody in it and, and can't recommend it enough. It's great. I agree. I also think 64 seems very low, um, oh, very low, but it seems low for this, for this movie. Yeah. Um, I understand there are quite a, like a good handful of movies that probably have more of a le- a legacy, on the yeah. list as opposed to like you know movies that people talk about and people know of and yeah. had an impact on future filmmakers but i i think a movie like this too um is this kind of format formula has been done a few times like what was that uh, lee daniels the butler i feel like is yes. a similar movie to this uh um, have... i think that's a much bigger span of life i would imagine though because well it, no that, but i mean yeah. but i mean it's the same idea where you follow yeah. a butler I, I mean in that movie he you know you go through many uh, president presidential terms as he serves various leaders of the free world. Yeah. Um, but it's the same kind of uh, idea where he goes, you know, you have a character that goes through all these like, you know, changes in politics and the world. And um, I think even that movie Forrest Whitaker is doing a sort of similar type thing like Anthony Hopkins, not, yeah. not totally. Like, I think he's more of an emotional character. So I think that, that character might not be as strong, but I don't know. I feel like it has an influence and Lee Daniels is a British filmmaker. So, I mean, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I also enjoyed this movie a great deal having expected nothing going in. Yeah, no, exactly. I didn't, yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. Just kind of expected a stuffy British drama and it wasn't stuffy. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, on that note, Jason, we are setting this aside. We have talked about the remains of the day. And now for the remains of this podcast. Hey! We are going to do the quote-unquote dice roll. We're on commentpicker.com. Commentpicker.com. Want you want your comments picked? Sign up today. And we are going to randomly select our next movie from the remaining ones we have on the BFI Top 100. Oh, I can't wait. We got 51 movies left on there. So, yeah. Oh, shit. We're almost halfway. So this will be our 50th movie on the list, Jason. This is our halfway mark. This is, this is, uh, uh, it's either going to be Carry On Up the Kyber or Whiskey Galore. <laughs> so it's got to be something big. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You give me the go ahead and I will roll. All right. Uh, on, on one, three, two, one. Here we go, Jason. What is it going to be? What is it going to be? Let us know. Ooh. The Day of the Jackal. Interesting. Another very long movie. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, I mean, a little bit. Like, about five minutes longer than this one. This is a movie um, that uh, I am very interested to talk about, and especially interested when we get to comparing the remake. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw the remake years ago, but... 
but uh, uh, the one with Bruce Willis and, and briefly Jack Black. Wow. Do you know what's really interesting? This movie stars Edward Fox. Fucking right. I am <laughs> in. So the day of the jackal, it is about an assassin, a, a, a planned assassination of, uh, you know what? We'll talk about it next week. We will. Day of the Jackal. Check it out at your local library. I'm pretty sure it's not too <laughs> difficult to find. Um, but having said that, uh, Jason, they can find us on Facebook by just searching for For Screen and Country. You can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find Jason on Twitter at Jason D. McLeod. That's M A C L E O D. Yeah, hit him up. Uh, let him know about all the mansions you've served over the years. Yeah, tell me. Uh, uh, where is your favorite servant stairway? <laughs> Mine is in the Vertigo household. Oh, very nice. So, yeah, do all that stuff. Find us. We're on all the podcatchers. But until then, Jason, I just got to say to you, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Careful some tea, sir. T. Earl Grey, hot. Uh, right away. All hands, prepare for multi-ball. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre. Why, we only live to serve. Try the grey stuff, it's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing, they can dance. After all, miss, this is France. And a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our guest. Beef ragu, cheese souffle, pie and pudding on flambe. We'll prepare and serve with flair a culinary cabaret. You're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flatware's entertaining. We tell jokes, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. Put it all in perfect taste that you can bear. Come on and lift your glass, you've won your own free pass to be our guest. If you're stressed, it's fine dining we suggest. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, those good old days when we were useful. Huh? Suddenly those good old days are gone.